turn to Hebrews chapter 10, the passage that uh, Pastor Russ was reading for us uh, this morning previously. Uh, you join me with, uh, with a word of prayer, Lord. Dear Lord, we thank you, God, for the breath that you have given us to praise you. We thank you for the opportunities that you've given us to gather together with like-minded believers to open up your word, to worship you, to open up your word, to learn of you, uh, God, to, to sing our, with our voices, to give of our means, to encourage and build each other up, God. I pray that you would be honored and glorified this morning, God. I pray that you would speak through your word, that uh, the truth that you have set out before us, God, would be evident, would be clear, God. And that the demands that it thrusts upon our life uh, would be well evident, and that your spirit would empower us with the ability to live lives of obedience, God. We praise your name. Amen. All right, so this morning, uh, I, I want to talk to you about church membership a little bit. We're going to want to talk to you about what it means to be a part of a church, okay? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had the privilege of welcoming some new members to our fellowship. It is always such a wonderful time to see God's Faithfulness in the life of the church is a testimony of the truth that Christ promised in the gospel of Matthew chapter 17, that he will build his church, that we are just faithful to follow the directives of God and God will be faithful to, to build his church. The church is such a unique institution. There is nothing like it. It is the only institution on earth that has the sovereign God behind it, building it. The church was bought with the blood of Christ it's charged with a proclamation of the gospel. And while the true church is invisible and universal, and when I mean that, I say that the true church cannot be seen. Those for whom Christ, the elect for whom Christ died, we do not know who specifically that is, right? That there is no mark that appears on us. There is no scent, as we've joked about in Foundations Bible Study. A believer doesn't smell any different. There is no visible indicator uh, as to who the actual elect are. It is invisible, but we meet in local bodies as uh, physical presentations of the church. We operate in local bodies to make Christ known and to worship the Lord. The church was founded by God and bought with the price of Christ's blood. And is, and is propelled by the Holy Spirit through his word. There is no organization on the face of the earth that can rival the eternal importance of the church. It is not just another club to which we are a member. It is not just another activity that fills the calendar of our week. When we welcome new members, we do so with the understanding that we share the same priorities, the same doctrinal distinctives, the same convictions, and to serve each other as God has so equipped us. When new members are welcomed in, Pastor Rag reads through uh, a list of questions 
And oftentimes we were talking about this at Deacon's meeting a few months ago, and I asked for a copy of the questions because I wanted to think about them more deeply. I wanted to think about them more clearly because so many times I think we hear the words and we can in that moment say, that sounds good. I agree. And we'll say yes. So let me read through some of these questions that are asked. Do you purpose by the aid of your heavenly father to do his will? So when we are asked to join fellowship here as a member, we are asked, is it going to be our desire to fulfill the will of the Lord? Presumptively, we answer yes. If you answer no, then we have other issues and we need to go back in time a little bit. We're asked, will you submit to the loving oversight and the discipline of the elders of this church and take this church and its members as your fellow members in the family of faith? Again, we would say, I will. We would agree to this. Will you be faithful to observe its ordinances, attend its services, uphold its benevolences, share its burdens, love its members, seek its unity, purity, and increase. There's a lot of information in that one sentence. And I think we so quickly say, I will, without stopping to think about each, in, in, each individual question in there. To the rest of the church, when a new member is brought on, we are given a charge. We are charged with the following. Do you purpose to support Encourage and faithfully pray for these individuals for the purpose of building up the body of Christ in this local congregation. So each one of us, upon the bringing on of a new member, I would hope the expectation is that you would say, yes, I do purpose to support and encourage and faithfully pray for these individuals. Do you commit to faithfully teach, admonish, exhort, and encourage each one of these individuals with great patience and instruction. Now, these are tall challenges that are laid out before us. And what I wouldn't want to do is to take an oath without really stopping to think about what it is that we're saying we will do. I hope that none of us would so easily and so smoothly, so quickly make a promise to which we haven't then thought about the implications of what, and what it would take to fulfill those promises. Church membership is a great thing. But unfortunately, member, many, many throughout our country do not approach church membership, and maybe even some in this own location. We do not approach church membership correctly. There are thousands upon thousands of people across our own country and hundreds upon hundreds of churches, thousands even, who approach church membership more like it's a gym membership. At some point in your life, you felt guilty. You felt spiritually out of shape. You looked at the spiritual flab that was growing on your sides and you thought, it'd probably be good for me to join a church. Maybe you looked at your children and you said, what kind of example am I setting for my own children if I'm not a part of a church? You, just like a gym, you go and you make a habit of going on a regular basis. The gym dutifully continues to charge you a fee each month. 
except at a church, you feel compelled to give a fee. At the gym, you use the equipment that you feel comfortable using. Maybe at first you want to push yourself a little bit, but then you find a comfort zone. You find that treadmill that has that TV in the perfect location that you feel really comfortable using over and over and over and over again. Maybe that's my own experience. <laughs> Just like a gym, you eventually maybe go when you want, use what you want, and then slowly probably feel a little guilty that you're not as involved as you ought to be. Many people deal with church membership just like it's a gym. In the book that uh, the, the deacons and elders are reading through right now is a book on discipleship, uh, the trellis and the vine, uh, that goes through the priorities of the local church to build the church up through discipleship. And in the book, the point is brought up that it is probably better to think of a commitment to a church, not as a membership, but as a partnership. The idea of membership connotates that it is here for your existence, that you, it is here for you to experience the perks of involvement, of attachment, rather than actually being a part of it and being a partner in the life of a church. The church does not exist solely for our own needs, but as a place for us to serve, to worship, to grow, and to exercise the gifts that God has so equipped us with. It is certainly a place where we go and we are fed. We are served. We have people involved in our lives that lead to our growth. But we ought to be exercising caution that we don't go looking for the perks of membership, but we go looking for the responsibilities of a partnership. This morning, I would like to look at some helpful charges that we see in Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews is writing to explain the supremacy of Christ. The first 10 chapters, the first nine chapters, really explaining the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is greater than the priests. God is, is greater than, than Moses. And in chapter 10, what Pastor Russ read for us this morning, we see a summary of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that put away the sacrificial system, that no longer are we needing a priest to constantly sacrifice on our behalf. Never mind the fact that those, the blood of bulls and rams never atoned for our sins. They never did away with our sins. We have a better sacrifice, and that is Christ. And in light of this truth, in light of the sacrifice of Christ, the author of Hebrews wants to charge us with what we ought to be doing and prioritizing as a church. These are responsibilities that we all bear. So this morning, in light of the cross, in light of the gospel, in light of the truth of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are going to be charged with three corporate priorities, three corporate priorities that we are all commanded to bear. 
We're going to start in verse 19 of chapter 10. And he begins in chapter 19, bringing us into these priorities and reminding us and summarizing the the message of the book of Hebrews in just a few verses. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, a major transition point here. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Because the holy place, the holy of holies, right? That the priest would be able to go in once a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel on the day of atonement. Now we have confidence to enter this holy place whenever we desire to. Because of the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. We know that in the temple, what separated the holy place and the holy of holies was a thick curtain. And we know that at the death of Christ, that curtain was torn in two, symbolizing and making clearly evident to everyone that we can now boldly approach the throne of God whenever we'd like. We don't need that intercessor anymore. We don't need an intermediate between us and God, only Christ. Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, so since we are now able to enter the holy place, and since we now have a great priest over the house of God, because of these realities, because of the truth of the gospel, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that the gospel is not a truth unto itself. It is a truth with consequences. Because of the truth of the gospel, now, and there's going to be a series of three, there are subjunctives in the original language here in in the Greek. These are subjunctives that these are three things that we should do, that we ought to do. Now you see a subjunctive and maybe you get home today and you're like, well, I should do some laundry. Well, I should clean the house, but that couch looks awfully comfortable. I should mow the lawn, but it's about 98 degrees outside, right? Those are things that you should do, that you ought to do, that you should not put them off. These subjunctives, the way that they work here, are oratory subjunctives. They function as imperatives, as commands. The author of Hebrews is saying, in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ has done, These are three things that we ought to do. Now notice the pronoun. Pronouns are important. It's let us, let us, let us. These are not individual commands. These are corporate commands. It is not something that God is commanding you specifically, individually, divorced of any other relation. These are commands given to the corporate body of believers, that this ought to be the priority of all of us, that we share this burden. This is for believers. This is for the redeemed, the elect. This is for the true church. So we're charged in these areas specifically, and I think we're charged in these areas specifically because our flesh tends to threaten these convictions. I think the author of Hebrews specifically charges us in these areas 
Because for different reasons, we are so often tempted to not hold to these, that these threaten the health and the function of the church when they are not followed through upon. While we'll focus on, we'll, we'll cover all three charges. I want to spend the majority of our time on the last one. So just be warned that we'll spend a little bit extra time there because uh, it is something that God has, has laid upon my heart for so many uh, different ways for a while now. So the first charge, the first priority is to be assured, to be assured that we see in verse 22. The first one we see, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first truth, the first reality, the first action that we should take in light of the gospel is to be assured of our salvation. To be bold. To draw near. To bring ourselves, again, not individually, but corporately. This is a charge to all of us as a body. That we as a body of believers draw near. And we ask ourselves, draw near to who? The answer should be obvious, right? God. To draw near to God, to draw near to our Savior. The one by whose blood our salvation was purchased in the first place. Now, each one of these, it's interesting as you read and study through this passage, each one of these charges, these priorities, are anchored in a text previously stated in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, verse 1, the very first verse of this, of this chapter, it says, since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near the same verb here, draw near. He, he covers here that the blood of sacrifices cannot make you perfect, make you those who draw near perfect. But rather in chapter seven, verse 25, it says he speaking of Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. We see this anchored previously in the book of Hebrews that we are to be assured we are to boldly draw near to the Lord because of Jesus Christ. Because he paid that price. Because that curtain was torn in two. Because we have that privilege to be able... That was something completely foreign to the nation of Israel. To be able to, to individually and corporately draw near without a high priest, without a person to have to go in on our behalf before God. In the Septuagint, the same word is used to describe the actions of the priests who would go to make sacrifices. They would draw near to God. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, now it's your turn. You, as a body of believers, make the habit of drawing near to God. And how do we draw near? With a full, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 
There should not be a sense of doubt and hesitation in our minds when we come before the Lord. There should not be a voice in our heads that says, you're not worthy of drawing near to God. The truth is, individually, we're not. But the truth is, Jesus Christ was, and he has given us that privilege. When we say that our sin is greater than Christ's grace, we are failing to believe and to boldly approach the throne of God. We are not drawing in full assurance. We are doubting on the faithfulness of God. This assurance creates a boldness to trust God's promises, to trust God's process, and to to passionately live for His glory. It is declaring what we know to be true and preaching the truth of God's word to ourselves. You've heard the phrase before, don't listen to yourself, preach to yourself, right? Don't listen to the doubts and to the fears that the flesh reminds you of on a daily basis. Rather, preach to yourself, preach to yourself truth, preach to yourself doctrine, preach to yourself what you know to be true from the word of God. Because it is on the basis of the word of God and what it has explained to us that we know we have assurance to draw near to the Lord. We have assurance because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. While we're still sinful in practice, we certainly still struggle with sin on a regular basis. We know that our position in Christ is firm and secure and unthreatened. It is declaring what we know to be true and preaching that truth to ourselves. So the first priority, the first corporate priority we have is to be assured. The second corporate priority we have is to stand firm. Stand firm. The next verse, 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. It is, I think, very appropriate, particularly in light of what we've been studying through in Second Peter and Jude in the first couple of chapters of Revelation, that we see the charge here as a body of believers to stand firm, to hold fast, to possess and to keep secure, to hold tightly upon this truth. And what is it that we're holding fast to? It is the confession of our hope, the truth of the gospel knowing that there is nothing on earth that can separate us from the love of God. There is no power in this country or in this world that can threaten our eternal security with God. He who promised is faithful. And again, we see this idea of holding fast. We see this back in chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, indeed, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The, the idea is that if you are elect, if you are redeemed, if your sins have been paid for, you will hold fast. That is an evidence of your salvation, not a fruit that leads to your salvation. 
Later on in chapter 3, verse 14, it says, For we share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. Again, the author here is calling back throughout the book of Hebrews and saying, these are true individually. Now these must be true corporately. Now these are charges that we all share. We are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And we are to hold fast without wavering. This, this word here, it's this idea of not leaning back or falling. We are familiar around here with, with hurricanes and strong winds, right? If you ever been in a strong wind of a hurricane and you can almost just lean into the wind and not fall over because of the force of the wind blowing upon you. And that sometimes you need to sit there and brace yourself so you don't lose footing. It is that idea that you take a firm stance because you know that there is opposition blowing against you. You know, there is a force out there that is trying to get you to move from the convictions that you have. Like I said, this is very apropos for what we're studying through the books of Second Peter, Jude, and, and Revelation. That we live in a culture and a world that is attempting to influence us to abandon the confidence to abandon our hope. But we are to do this without wavering, that we as a body of believers, and this is another thing, another so important, that this is a corporate truth. If you individually are, are being compelled to move, you will exert all of your own effort to stand. But if you were able to lock arms with a group of other people and you share their strength. So in those moments when you are weak, their strength is holding you in. That is the way that God has designed the church to operate. He has not designed the church and he has not, well, I should say he's not designed you to, to, Live individually apart from the church body because you are weak, because you need encouragement, because you need strength, because there will be times where that gust of wind will be strong enough to bowl you over. But it is in those times that God has graciously provided the church to lock arms with us when we feel like falling, when we are tempted to doubt when we are tempted to surrender, to give an inch, it is because we are corporately standing firm and locking arms together that we are able to stand upon the truth and the hope of our confession. We are placing our full confidence in believing what God says to be true. And we boldly stand upon the truth of God's word corporately. We stand together. The third priority and the one that I would like to spend a chunk of time on here is that we are to build each other up. We are to build each other up. Verses 24 and 25. Let me, 
read 24 and then we'll deal with 25 after. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. There's so much interesting truth in, in these verses here that we, we, this is calling for specific thought, not a casual observation that this is fixing your eyes upon something or you're fixing your mind upon something that you are taking time to consider. You're taking your time to analyze the situation. You are looking for opportunities This takes purposeful thinking that we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And I will tell you that it is easy and it is a temptation for our flesh to walk in a room and to ask, who's going to say hi to me? Who's going to talk to me this morning? Who really loves me? Who's going to fill my love cup? Sometimes we walk into a room and we think, that we are about to be served. We are about to be fed. And what the writer here is saying is as a church, you ought to walk in the room and you ought to look around and say, how can I build these people up? How can I encourage? How can I embolden and feed and instruct and exhort and admonish? We are naturally self-focused people. At least I am. Maybe you've grown more in this area than I have. But this takes purpose. This takes preparation. As we gather together, as we prepare our own hearts, we don't just casually come into the church without thoughtful preparation. But we come and we think, Who do I need to encourage this morning? Who do I need to reach out to? Who needs help standing firm? Who is being tempted to weakness? That this takes considerable thought. Strategic thought, specific thought to consider. And then we're considering how to stir up one another. Now, Interestingly, this word to stir up here is often used in a negative way that someone has been tempted to sin, incited to sin. This idea of being provoked, right? That the action of one person has provoked you to do something else. Now, anyone who has two children, as I do, Sometimes one person will do something that will provoke an action in the, in the other, right? And we, normally when we think about that, we think of a negative provoking. At least that was, again, the experience of myself and my own sister growing up. That we would provoke each other, but not unto good works. <laughs> we would often provoke each other unto, unto frustration. This idea that... You're, you're considering, you are thinking specifically, how can I provoke and propel this person unto love and good works? God uses each and every one of us to push 
each other towards godliness. There is not a single redeemed person. There is not a single elect person in God's church that does not bear the responsibility to encourage another believer in the Lord. And sometimes we're weak. And sometimes we go and we think, I need to be encouraged this morning. I need to be built up. But our pattern of thought needs to be thinking about the other person, thinking about specifically the other believer. We're to stir each other up to love and good works. This is agape love. It is love that meets the greatest, most deepest and sincere need of the person who is being shown love. This is a love that is impossible for us to exercise in and of ourselves. It's a sacrificial love. It is looking at another person and saying, how does that person need to be shown love? What do they need? And how can I meet that need regardless of what it's going to cost me? Obviously, this was done most effectively and most clearly at the cross. Christ saw our deepest need was the forgiveness of our sins. So he wanted to meet that need. What did it cost Christ to meet that need? The cross. But we know from Hebrews later on, chapter 12, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame, that it was joy that drove Christ to the cross despite of what it was going to cost him, because that was the deepest need that we had in that moment. And it is only through the exercise of agape love that we are able to exercise good works, that we are able to live lives of obedience. Agape love is foreign to the flesh. It does not come naturally to us. It is only possible through redemption, through the the radical change of our own hearts. Now, there are many ways in which this is exhibited throughout Scripture. And on, on a couple of Friday nights ago, I was meeting with some of the guys here at church, and I wanted to talk about this message and and bounce some ideas off of them. And we were talking about different ways in which this is exhibited throughout the New Testament and specifically in the life of Paul. You look at Paul, Paul, the apostle, the great missionary, the the bold proclaimer of truth. I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Paul was dependent upon other people to encourage him. And that is so evident when you read the epistles. I would encourage you to sit down, look through the beginning and the end of epistles and look at what people in churches meant to Paul. You read of people like Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, Silas, Luke, Epaphroditus, Tychicus, Titus, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Onesimus, Phoebe, and so many more, Onesiphorus, even Mark. John Mark, who had abandoned Paul early on in his ministry, when Paul is is close to death in 2 Timothy, he says, bring Mark to me. He is useful. 
He can encourage me. Paul needed that encouragement of other believers in his own life. Paul was not an island. If Paul was not an island, brother and sisters, we are not islands. We cannot live the lives that God has asked us and charged us to live without the encouragement and the building up of other believers. Look at the one another's throughout the New Testament. Love one another, live in harmony with each other, look to the interests of one another, bear one another's burdens, bear with one another, be kind and compassionate, speak truth and love to one another, serve one another, build up one another, teach one another, comfort, exhort, encourage, honor, admonish, show hospitality, pray for one another, confess to one another, and more. These are all ways that we stir one another up to love and good works. Romans 12 verse 10 says, Love one another with a brotherly affection and seek to outdo one another in giving honor. Paul's presenting it almost like it's a competition. Almost like you're looking at people and you're like, how how can I serve? How can I challenge the people around me to love? And I'll, I'll tell you, I, that, that is how God has grown me in my own life. God has used that in my own life. I want to talk a little bit about that at the end. Before we get there, also look at Titus chapter two. You don't have to turn there, but In Titus chapter 2, older men are charged as well as older women with teaching and training younger men and younger women. Now, how many of you have someone who's older? Anybody around here have someone who's older? There should be one person in the room who isn't raising their hand. (laughs) We're not going to ask who that is. Some people are looking around and taking guesses. How many of you have people who are younger? Now, if you have the ability to raise your hand, there is someone who is younger than you. So again, everyone should be raising their hands. If you qualify as having someone who is younger than you and someone who is older than you, then you fit this charge in Titus. If there is someone who is younger than you, you qualify. Congratulations. It's your responsibility to train and equip them. It's not... Pastor Rag's responsibility solely to train and equip them. It's not Russ's sole responsibility to train and equip them. It's our responsibility to train and equip them. Now he follows this up in Hebrews chapter 10 with a negative and a positive. He presents the negative first and Considering how to stir one another up to love and good works, he says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. Now it's interesting. We, we often hear this verse quoted, right? We often hear that we, we need to not neglect being together, right? But we have to remember that it's not just the physical attendance that is being spoken of here. The priority is to stir one another up to love and good works, not just physically be with one another, not just to check off on your calendar that, yeah, I went to church this week, 
We are to not neglect to meet together. Now, it, it, it could be confusing to think about why you would want to neglect to be with one another. Why, we could ask ourselves, why was it a temptation for them to neglect to be together? Why, why did they get in the habit of not being together? The answer is we don't know. <laughs> we could make guesses and educated guesses, sanctified guesses. Persecution. Probably be a pretty good reason for them to look at their lives and say, oh, if I go there, I'm going to associate myself with those people. And that's going to take a toll on my business. That's going to take a toll on my personal life. That's going to take a toll on my family. If I go public with identifying myself as a Christian. And there could be truth to that today, more and more as the days go by that there could be a very real consequence for aligning yourself and physically attending a Bible teaching church who actually believes that the Bible is the word of God and has authority over our lives. That you're one of those cavemen who aren't progressed in your thought. And that could be true. But I think we as Americans find a lot of other reasons to neglect to be together. Laziness. Entertainment, found something better to do with our lives. Could be a lot of different reasons why someone would neglect to be together. One commentator said, if threatened, the corporate life of the congregation and almost, and almost certainly was a prelude to apostasy on the part of those who were separating themselves from the assembly, the neglect of worship and fellowship was symptomatic of a catastrophic failure to appreciate the significance of Christ's priestly ministry and the access to God it provided. That you want to neglect being together? You want to neglect the assembling together with other believers? You are just preparing yourself to fall into sin. You are Sowing fertile soil to fall into false teaching if you neglect being together with other believers. You are setting yourself up for a fall. Now, we live in a unique time today, particularly with the consequences of COVID-19. This verse was thrown around a lot when people were asking, should churches open? Should churches stay closed? How should we act? How should we react? One of the things that was so encouraging to me is just like water seeks the lowest point and will spread to wherever it can to find the lowest point, the true church will do whatever it can to be together. What was encouraging to me is that when the doors physically closed for a few weeks, believers could not stay apart from each other. We came up with driveway visits. We came up with social distancing lawn visits. We came up, well, we didn't come up with Zoom, but we took advantage of it. <laughs> right? Suddenly, you see faces 
And you're encouraged just by seeing the face of the other person and how excited they are to see your face and the other faces. But those, while good, are not recipes for long-term success and growth. (laughs) But it was encouraging to see how the true church is not content to sit back and to wait for permission to meet together. If there is a time when maybe you weren't able to meet together, we do know that in this time that a virus was bearing down consequences in people's lives and was a danger to to people. And that people did need to take precautions. And some people decided that they needed to isolate themselves and praise the Lord that we have a live broadcast where those people can hear the word of God and they can stay connected. But that has to be done with a very somber precaution. While we praise God that we have the technology to broadcast the service live, merely sitting and watching this on a TV or a computer screen does not, qualify as doing church. And I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are very real reasons why some people do need to isolate themselves. But even in those moments of isolation, that does not mean that we do not bear the responsibility to stir one another up to love and good works. I was encouraged to see how people went to extra miles, extra lengths to encourage people whether it was writing letters, whether it was getting in a car and visiting someone at a distance, whether it was a phone call, that the true church will always consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, regardless of the situation. You look at Paul. For much of his ministry, he was in jail. And people still went to prison to minister to Paul to stir him up to love and good works. That's just the reality of the church. But at the same time, just because maybe you physically came to church every week doesn't mean that you were walking in obedience. You come and you sing some songs, you sit and you listen to the word of God, you shake a few hands, maybe drop a check and a plate, and then you walk on with the rest of your life. It's not just merely about church attendance. It's about church attendance that leads to stirring one another up to love and good works. Now, how do you speak to one another when you see each other, right? Now, as a guy, right? So funny story, okay? This morning, my wife called. I tried calling Russ, couldn't get a hold of Russ. Leah called Andrea and we just needed a ladder that we had lent. And I, I needed the ladder for some things this week. And Guy communicates, hey, uh, so I know we rent, lent you a ladder. Um, just wondering if you could bring it back so I could um, use it this week. Leah calls Andrea and starts telling her the entire life story of why we need the ladder, right? 
And Andrea's first reaction was wisely calling me Tim sick. He can't preach this morning. So thankfully it wasn't that. But guys and girls communicate differently, right? Not a new thought. We're not breaking new ground here. Guys get together and we're like, hey, how you doing? Good, good. Yeah. How's your week? Good week? Good, good. All right, good. Celtic's pretty disappointing, right? Yeah. Got a new gun, right? You got a new gun? How's that gun working out for you? Yeah? Shoots straight? Good. Like the car, it, right? Like it, there are so many things. I think God has, God has sovereignly given me excuses of, of things to not talk about because there are so many things that I just don't understand to be able to converse about like guns and cars that I, I don't have those crutches to lean on socially. <laughs> but guys get together and we talk with each other. And we have very casual surface conversations. And the charge here is to have very specific, consequential conversations. That we ask each other questions very specifically. The guys that meet together on Friday nights, I warned them. I said, I'm going to ask you some questions that are going to be specific. And, and I'm going to ask you, I text them ahead of time. What threatened your peace in Christ this week? How many have led off a conversation with that? <laughs> but we need to have those conversations. We need to be able to encourage and to build each other up to love and good works. We see here in verse 25 that we not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but, and the, con- the word but here is the word Allah is the strongest contrast, but, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This word for encourage, it is putting your arm around someone. It is putting your arm around someone and warning them, encouraging them, admonishing and exhorting, saying, we are in this together. I want to encourage you. The entire community, the entire church must assume responsibility to watch that no one grows weary or becomes apostate. This is possible only when Christians continue to exercise care for one another personally. That when we gather together, we gather together to worship and we gather together to encourage each other and to watch out for each other, to make sure that none of us are growing weary, that none of us are getting tired and open ourselves up to sin and temptation, let alone false teaching. We must be purposeful in speaking truth to one another. Again, the writer of Hebrews ties us back to chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Very stark warning. It says, Rather, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we need each other. I need you speaking truth into my life. I need you speaking truth into my wife's life, into my children's life, into my parents' life. And you need me speaking truth into your life. Because sin is deceitful. 
because our hearts are prone to be hardened. That is why God made the church the way it is. Because we need that exhortation and encouragement because sin is serious. And this is all done with an eschatological bent, with a framework, a mind towards the end to the day of the Lord coming. It creates an urgency for the encouragement and reproof. An unresolved tension goes on between peril and promise as long as we are in this world. The sober reminder that the day of the Lord is drawing near offers further incentive for continued active participation in the life of the church. We know that the day of the Lord is drawing near. And so that increases the need and the priority for us to be together and to encourage each other. If you want to be reminded about the consequences, look to the next verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You want to know what's on the line? Eternity. Eternity is on the line. That we must speak truth into each other's lives to make sure that we end well, to make sure that we run the race We must put ourselves into situations to make sure that we walk lives, run lives of endurance, that we need each other. That is the way that Jesus Christ has designed the church to operate. I pray that this is a sober reminder for us to take these times seriously. And I hope that by now you see the connection, your connection and the role in the life of the church is not a minor one. You may look and say, look, I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a deacon. I don't teach. What role do I have in the body of believers? What what possible consequence is there if I'm here or not here? God has equipped each and every one of us with gifts to exercise within the context of the local church. And like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he created beforehand so that we could walk in them. That we were created for obedience. And God has made those good works ahead of time. And we are in each other's lives to provoke and encourage each other up to lives of obedience, to run, to live to believe and to trust. As I close, I was born 40 years ago and raised in this church. I'm told I was baby Jesus in the first church Christmas play. I don't remember it, but I hear it got rave reviews and I stayed silent. No crying he made. And I am who God has brought me and shaped me to be because of the influence that people have had in this very room and people who have not been here for some time have shaped and influenced me. 
Many of you were there to see me take wobbly steps and see me fall and make mistakes and encourage and build me up to push me towards godliness. And throughout my life, I can look at so many times where I needed the church to encourage me. A few years ago, I remember very specifically, um, I had been out of work for almost a year and I found a job and seemed to be going very well. And I found out on a Friday that I lost that job again. And I was crushed. And everything within me just wanted to curl up into a hole and live there for a couple of days. But it was a Friday night. And my kids needed to go to church. And I knew I needed to be encouraged. And I walked in. And Brandon and Neil gave me a hug. And said they were praying for me. I needed that. I needed that encouragement. I needed that building up. I was so discouraged in that moment, but I knew that what God was providing for my encouragement was in the walls of this building within the people of this building. That these people needed to encourage me and to build me up, to confront me, to challenge me. And recently, It's happened again when I needed encouragement and my wife and I needed encouragement. And so many people came up to us with a very sincere desire to care and to help people who have walked through similar situations as we are, who have walked those dark valleys and have come out the other side preserved by God. And you encourage us. And my prayer is that I encourage you. When faced with difficulty, I know that I am surrounded by so many who have walked through dark valleys of life. And when we find ourselves in those dark valleys, we look to our left and we look to our right. And we realize that we are locked arms with other believers. We are locked arms with other believers who are boldly approaching the throne of God in assurance of faith, who are standing firm upon the truth of God's word and or actively considering how to stir one another up to love and good works, because that is what God has created the church to do. What we do when we are together has eternal consequences. God has put us here to give us a context in which we are to draw near. We are to stand firm and to provoke one another up to love and good works. So I would encourage and exhort each one of you to make that a priority whenever we gather together. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, I, I thank you so much for the church, God. I thank you that you did not save us, redeem us, and then leave us alone. But through your goodness, through the work of your son and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, God, you work in the church to encourage one another up to love and good works, to challenge each other to stand firm and to boldly approach the throne of God. And we pray that we would be diligent to do this all the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching with all that more urgency, God, to live lives of obedience for you. We praise your name. Amen.